0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Cleantechnica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our
1: website at cleantechnica.com.
2: We are here for another episode of Cleantech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Cleantechnica. I'm joined today by Kendall Whitehead and Steve Block from ABB, a couple of EV charging leaders. I'll let them introduce themselves a bit further in a moment, but just to start off, Kendall has been with ABB for 5 years and he's uh, commissioned hundreds of DC fast chargers in the field, worked across, you know, electric buses, electric cars, electric heavy-duty trucks. So, extensive broad experience in this in this space. And Steve has been Working actually, he's worked at a number of different EV charging companies over the years. Starting with Aero Environment uh, out of California, big, big EV charging company from 2013 to 2015. EV Connect 2015 2018, and then for the past few years, ABB had its EV charging division. And going a bit further back, he was he started off at Cornell. And in this, in this space, he has signed multi-million dollar contracts with Volkswagen, with the Electrify America network, Ford, Kia, Fiat, pg and and SCE. So these guys have an extensive amount of experience in the EV charging world. And I know there's much more to say about who you are and, and your background here. So I'll leave it to you guys to give some more input on, on, on that. So starting with uh, Kendall.
1: Yeah, thanks for that intro, Zach. A little bit more about myself. I, I grew up in a small town in, in Southern Arkansas, and I've kind of made my way across to, to, to the West Coast to really be in this industry. But yeah, you hit it right uh, nail on the head. Um, I, I started out as an application engineer, really, uh, in the EV space, which was going out and doing commissionings, installations, troubleshooting, interoperability testing, all the, all the above for electric vehicles. And I really, really got into the space uh, because of that. But I knew that I wanted to be more on the, on the technical side and use some of uh, some of the skills that I learned in school alongside my engineering degree. So some business, some business applications. And so I, I moved into a commercial sales role where I primarily work with our bus and transit or heavy duty vehicle seg- segments um, alongside Steve. So that's really where I'm at today. Most of everything that I do is kind of this uh, this consulting, if you will, for a lot of lot of customers who are looking to electrify their fleets. And again, pro, pro, the, the most of that actually is in the heavy duty bus and, and truck segment. So it'll be a really good conversation going forward, talking about electric trucks.
2: Great. And Steve, you have anything more to say on your extensive background and history?
0: Sure. So um, I came from the data center world, and now I've been in the EV charging world for about nine years, as you mentioned, Zach. So I first company I was with in EV charging focused on AC, level two charging. And then I moved to a company that created a software platform for managing EV charging stations and got to spend a couple of years there and learn about that aspect of the business. And now with ABB, we're very focused on DC fast charging. We have over 20,000 DC fast chargers installed in over 85 countries. So getting to see all three of those elements, it's very interesting how this industry has evolved. And you can see how really medium and heavy duty fleets is really giving so much growth to the DC fast charging segment within our market because the vehicles have such large batteries that a level two AC charger is just not powerful enough to charge those types of vehicles.
2: Yeah, well, you know, we've been covering the the, the rise of the EV industry for a decade, and it's been really fun, exciting to see the different phases and how, how, the, how it's evolved. But I would say something close to my heart has always been the heavy duty trucking segment, because there's just so much pollution comes from them. And there's so much potential to to cut emissions. And we are really seems like we're hitting a kind, we're getting into that phase a lot more. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about what kind of electric trucks are available or coming across, across the whole field of trucks, all different types of trucks, and which electric truck use cases uh, are emerging first at this point?
0: Okay, so in the Medium heavy-duty truck space, it is a little bit behind the transit bus space in the sense that uh, most of the vehicles that have been deployed so far are still relatively early beta pilots. Many of these companies have started to go into uh, production for their vehicles, but it really has just started. So, you know, some of the bigger players, Daimler, Packard with their Peterbilt, Kenworth Brands, Volvo have really just launched their trucks, their production models this year, and some won't even launch till next year. But we're seeing huge growth, especially in California. This space is really focused on short haul. So point to point, not going from all the way from California to the East Coast, it's, it's possible that that will happen, but it's possible that hydrogen will be the way to, to go much longer haul. But you know, there, of course, there are a lot of other players that have been around that aren't some of the larger, more established companies, like Lightning Motors, for example, and and others that have been providing box trucks and moving kind of up from you know class five, class six, up to you know, class eight trucks. So in general, this market is just taking off. We're really in the first inning. It's very exciting, and you know, the growth's only going to grow up. You know, huge from here.
2: Is it sort of comparable to like when the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Volt were first introduced in the car segment?
0: I would say it goes feels more like the BMW uh, Pilot. (laughs) I'm trying to think what that one was called.
2: The Active E, yeah.
0: Active E, yes, yeah. I mean, we really in the early days for medium heavy duty trucks. You, I don't know if you're following the HBIP funding in the state of California. But in the past, the funds you would take weeks or months before they were allocated. And I believe the last batch was done in 15 minutes. So it's, there's just a lot of companies now that are embracing it and that want to deploy a certain number of electric vehicles in their fleet and see how that's going to work. And of course, uh, especially in California, a lot of the utilities, PG&E, Southern California Edison, and San Diego Gas and Electric, have huge programs to help with offsetting some of the infrastructure costs with uh, installing charging stations.
2: Yeah, we you know we've covered these kind of announcements from Volvo, from Daimler, from Tesla for years. I mean, the, I think the semi was on Tesla semi was unveiled like five years ago or something, and there were a lot of other electric trucks sort of unveiled at the time, but then, you know, people asked for updates and was like, well, there's not a lot of updates we can provide about all of these things. So it's exciting to hear that things are starting to get a little more off the ground. Kendall, can you speak a bit more about where the electric truck market is to, is today and sort of the initial uh, maybe leaders or, or segments in this space a bit more?
1: Well, I think Steve really did a great job there, but I did want to make note that there is also a A piece of this market right that is um, conversions. I think that there's there's actually a lot going on out there for electric truck conversions versus hey we're going to build the chassis from the ground up that's all battery electric. Uh, There are some companies out there uh, doing a great job of taking um, taking an an electric uh, or or taking a standard uh, diesel or you know other type of combustion engine and then turning that into a fully electric vehicle and putting it back on the road, kind of repurposing it instead of sending it to the junkyard or retiring it and doing who knows what with it. Um, So I I really like to point in that direction as well as saying, yeah, we've we've got some really great folks that, you know, just like Steve said, Daimler, Packard, Volvo, we're doing a great job of putting out uh, full battery electric uh, from the ground up sort of vehicles. And they're actually doing a great job of getting those out and having some really good use cases for that. But we also see success with conversions. And I, and I, I kind of like it because it gives us a little bit more of that, like, Hey, we're, we're doing a little bit more to, to take something that's, that's been polluting in the past and transform it into something that's not going to be polluting for the future. And so I really, I really like to to speak to that as, as well. I think it's such an interesting, an interesting piece of the market. And, um, it's growing, it's, it's growing really quickly as well. So and I think as far as use cases, I, I, I just like Steve said, it's, it's mostly point to point. I mean, we're talking about we're, we're seeing a lot of folks going and doing like, um, trucking in the ports, where they'll show up to the port, and they're doing a lot of movement around in the port, they're not going incredibly long distances, but they're able to pick up their loads, they're able to move them around, they're able to drop them, and then do that several times throughout the day before having to go back and charge. And so there, there's quite a bit of, of use cases out there that are similar to that, that aren't just, hey, long haul 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 mile routes in a day where you may just be able to say, hey, we're going to stop this location. We're going to move around and we're going to do these different things. So that's a, it's it's a trend in EV infrastructure and EV charging in general is that when you're in, in high voltage, larger battery pack vehicles, kind of these heavy duty applications, if you know your route's going to be relatively predictable. If you know where your vehicle is going to be at every night, it makes uh, it, it makes the argument much, much stronger for conversion to EV. So that's kind of uh, where we're seeing a lot of the action take place with electric trucks as well.
2: So, you know, a lot of what what gets talked about a lot in the electric vehicle world among enthusiasts is kind of total cost of ownership, because although, you know, you have to pay for the battery up front, you can also sort of see the battery as a... As, uh, as a tool for much lower total cost of ownership because of the great, great, you know, much higher efficiency of, of electric motors, uh, electric powertrains. So this must be, you know, this is the sort of the exciting thing with fleets is, you know, total cost of ownership gets looked at a lot more, a lot more closely. So can you talk about the economics of EVs for fleets and why to focus on fleets a bit more?
1: Yeah. I think that the, economics of fleets in general, and I mean, we'll obviously focus on trucks in this conversation, but I think just as we, when we look at fleets in general, uh, there are a lot of different things that we can, we can look at. I particularly, because I'm in the field a lot or have spent a lot of time in the field and kind of touching the equipment and being around the operations and uh, a little bit more boots on the ground type of things. I think a lot of the times when I think of the economics of, of moving to something like an EV over an ICE vehicle is maintenance I think maintenance is a, is a really big one, it's particularly in electric trucks. If you go into any truck yard, you've got folks tinkering around on engines. You've got people pulling engines. You've got all sorts of stuff being done. There's fluids everywhere. It's dirty. And I think that we see a lot of that shifting in the electric truck world where, yes, you're still going to have road grit and things like that on your components. And they're all being built that way. But you don't necessarily have to worry as much about changing fluids, about having all these different maintenance items that you've got to do on a day-to-day basis for your vehicle, and also obviously things like brake pads or all those sorts of items that are going to be on your electric vehicle. Now, that's obviously not uh, an electric truck only thing. It's applicable to almost every fleet out there. And as you scale a fleet, that cost savings increases as well. So I particularly look almost directly at things like maintenance, but there's obviously you know, depending on how you can work it out with your utility or how you're, you're, you're managing your utility costs and, and, and power costs, there is, is an argument to be made about, hey, your electricity costs are going to be lower than your fuel costs in general. And so if we just do it on a fuel-to-fuel basis, electricity can be a lot cheaper than diesel than some of these other options. So Steve, you may be able to speak a little bit more to that and what you've seen with some of your customers as far as the total cost of ownership. But it's it's all about those those maintaining costs, right? It's, it's how much lower are those uh, operating expenses versus your capital expense? Because we know the capital expense is going to be higher, so we've got to try to figure out what what from an operating expense standpoint is going to be lower. And in this case, a lot of times it's it's fuel costs and it's and it's maintenance, at least uh, from what from what I see.
2: And is that often easy to communicate and and you know. Click does that does that does that often click right away or does that take some some work you know kind of explaining to some some customers?
1: Well, in some cases, I think it's it's relatively easy because they know their things like maintenance costs they understand and and they know engines and they know their vehicles. Uh, particularly if you're talking to somebody like a like a facilities manager or maintenance manager of a fleet, they they know how much uh, goes into managing and maintaining something like an internal, internal combustion engine. So They're very familiar with that, and you can you can immediately say, "Look, here's here's how your electric motor is going to look." You don't have any of those things, so they, they, they can see that savings right away. Now, then their mind starts thinking, "Okay, well, what's going to replace that?" And uh, the, the the there are some different things, right? you've got to think about training your training your maintenance folks to work on electric equipment versus just uh, you know internal combustion engines or kind of mechanical motors and things like that. But I think that that piece is relatively relatively easy to communicate. Things like fuel costs sometimes, it, I think, t- to be honest, it's very dependent on where they're at, right? Um, we know, I, I know some fleets who are operating in Washington where they're using hydroelectric dam power that costs less than like three cents a kilowatt hour. And to them, it's, it's the easiest question to answer in the world. They say, oh, wow, I can only, it's only going to cost me, you know, three cents per kilowatt hour versus whatever I'm paying for, for uh, diesel or other fuels. That's easy to communicate, but then you may go into California somewhere and say, Oh, it's going to be, you know, 10 times that cost. It may be 25 cents a kilowatt hour or, or even more than that. Um, and then you go to places like Hawaii and it's 40 cents a kilowatt hour, 50 cents a kilowatt hour. It could be really expensive. And so you really have to kind of dive in and say, All right, let's, let's talk about how we manage this. Is there a way to, you know, it gets the conversation gets much more complex. Yeah. And I would just add to what Kendall's
0: saying, which is in California, if you're going electric, you have a benefit of what is called LCFS credits, which are the low carbon fuel standard credits, basically carbon credits. And today, I believe that one carbon credit is worth about $200 on the open market. And that translates to about 1500 kilowatt hours of energy. So with a heavy duty vehicle, you're getting anywhere from 0.3 miles to maybe a half a mile of range on a kilowatt hour of energy. So a business can easily calculate the additional savings that they would get if they operate their vehicle in the state of California to offset their you know, electricity costs. And then they can compare that to the cost of fuel. And there's definitely huge savings, in, uh, especially in the state of California because of the LCFS credits. Now, Kendall, uh, I believe Oregon has adopted those LCFS credits as well. I think a couple other states are... Uh, have proposals to do the
1: same thing. Yeah, that's right. I think Washington and Oregon right now both have uh, similar LCFS credit programs that have just either just been put into place or are being rolled out very, very soon. And obviously other states will be, I think other states will be kind of following along. Um, You know, it probably won't be an entire federal type of program. At least I haven't seen any talks of a federal type of carbon emissions program, but I mean, that's uh, at least in the bus and transit world, um, when I'm working on a bus project we're always talking LCFS credits and that's almost that's that's really what is the tipping point point in saying yes this is this makes sense for us and, and this doesn't make sense for us. So um, hopefully we're going to get to a point where we don't ever need the LCFS credits. that's really that's really going to be a good a good start but as far as um, getting people going, the LCFS credits are, are are incredible.
2: And I mean this also I'm sure, peak demand charges this kind of you know time of time of charging comes in can you just i guess speak a little bit more to about how you help networks and fleets understand the charging options you know based on different use cases different site needs how the process works we just actually put together this you know EV charging 101 guide for for basic level 2 and level 1 charging and it was a little surprising how much you have to go in and try to ex- explain and how, how much you have to look, you know, lay out the different options and try to uh, help people understand those who, who are not you know, already aware of all this. So I'm sure it's much more difficult on the on the, you know, on the trucking and bus level. Can you talk a bit about that as well now, uh, maybe starting with Steve this time? Sure. I mean, we could have a separate.
0: Uh, podcast just on how to choose the the right charging station, but giving you the shortest way to to describe it, you you need to think about a couple things, which is how many vehicles are you buying? How many miles do those vehicles travel every day? How much time do you have available during the day or at night to recharge these vehicles? And then from that, you can determine what power level of charging stations you need and how many you need. So once you take a look at that then you have to understand from your utility side what are the tariffs do you have demand charges like you mentioned Zach so a lot of people aren't familiar with commercial utility rates that you're not just charged by the amount of energy you use which is kwh but also the amount of power that has provided to your facility in terms of kw and they look at the utility looks at that in 15 minute intervals and they look for the highest usage in that 15-minute window for a period of a full month. So if in just during that month, you have this one 15-minute interval that's very high amount of power delivered to your facility, that becomes your fee for that month. And so those terms demand charges can really affect how much you pay in electricity. Now, the three biggest utilities that I mentioned earlier, they all have special EV rates right now, and they're not charging demand charges uh, when you're charging specifically EVs. But if you're in another state where you do have demand charges, now you have to think about being strategic in when are you gonna charge these vehicles in order to meet your use case, meaning be able to operate your fleet. So you can do things where through our charging stations, with some of our partners that have these OCPP network platforms, they can manage through what's called smart charging profiles, the charge rate of the charging station. So even though the vehicle may want 150 kilowatts of power, you can control that through a software platform to manage your demand charges. But uh, that's why I was saying it gets complex because you know ultimately you're optimizing it, but you have to operate your fleet. And you have to allow for some level of redundancy as well, because if, say, one charging station is broken, you're going to need to use the other charging stations to offset the one broken charger.
2: Yeah. And just at the beginning there, you know, k- uh, kilowatts versus kilowatt hours, you know, there's been a thorn in my side for over a decade because it's very hard for some people to to, to know to understand the difference. Very hard to explain it. You explained it ex- very well. I'm sure you know that because you must have tailored that that discussion after many Many efforts, but you know, just the idea of energy that goes in and fills up your battery versus the power that goes in at any given moment, and kind of you know, the, it's very hard to just get that basic vocabulary down with with some some. But I guess in this industry, you wouldn't probably have a lot of trouble with that, or is that still like even the you know getting the basic vocabulary down a bit difficult sometimes?
0: I, I would say most people don't understand power. I mean, Kendall and I are both electrical engineers, and We've learned that when we went to college. So we understand that power equals volts times amps. But no, I would say the vast majority of the people that I speak to, they, they don't know it. They're very appreciative of having some you know basic conversation and educating them on, on the basics, as well as even how utilities charge for electricity. It's most, most people don't outside the, you know the industry that we're all in the actual people operating vehicles, fleet operators, they don't know.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's just the next step too. Yeah. Right. It's like understanding your electric bill and that kind of uh, you, you know, you can understand well, your electricity usage, how it changes with different things, but still not really understand the, the strange calculus of your electric bill. So it, it, it must be an interesting like kind of process where you sort of have to navigate what the person knows sort of quickly and then try to go from there to, to go along the chain of of topics, yeah, Kendall, do you have anything to add on that?
1: Yeah, I think we really approach it from a, and, and I said this a little bit earlier, almost like a consultative, consultative. Not sure what the right word is there, but from a consulting type of approach, where we're we're not just going in there and trying to say, hey, no, this is the charger that's going to work best for you. We really need to sit down and and think about what is your operation and how can we, how can we reduce the the change to your operation. And that's just like Steve said, is trying to figure out which vehicles you've got, what the battery size is, how much idle time do you have, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then you've got to sit down and really, really try to understand with them. What did, what do they understand about EV charging? What do they not understand about EV charging? I think um, there's a lot of education that goes into every conversation that Steve and I have with, with our folks in the industry. Um, And that's why I think it's a really tight knit industry because we're all, We've all been learning from the beginning and there's new things that pop up every day and new challenges. Uh, it's such a, it's such a fun place to be, but really you've got to, you've got to go in there and, and the process is really sit down with a with your customer or whoever you're working with and say, all right, let's, let's talk through this thing. And you do have to kind of figure that, figure out quick, what do they, what do they understand or, or what do they not understand? And, and just to, just as a point of clarification, I, Technically I went to school for mechanical engineering and not electrical engineering, but uh, obviously I learned, I learned the basics of, of the uh, electrical stuff in school and I've been able to apply that and learn. I mean, the, the last several years have just been such a great learning experience for me, but um, now I feel confident I can go in and, and, and talk to customers about these sorts of things, which is, again, it's it's all about learning and, and kind of this consultative approach and really figuring out what, what the customer's needs are and, and jumping from there. So yeah, it's, it's the process is, interesting. And every customer has different challenges, uh, whether it be a utility, whether it be operations, whether it be, you know, cost management, demand charters, things like that. And so it's, it, it can get complex quick, just like uh, Steve was saying.
2: Yeah. And to most of us outside of that world, we'd be electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, what's what's different about what learning, <laughs> you learn? Know? here? And I'll, you know, ask another one that's, you know, I'm sure basic for you guys, but uh, even in my case, I'm not really aware of this that that well. Uh, what are the charging standards for trucks different from charging standards for cars, or do they all share the same charging standards? So,
0: it, for cars, there were two standards really for DC fast that had emerged. One was uh, CCS, which is the Combined Charging System. The other was, ch- or is, Chatamo, which was the Japanese standard. And with cars,
2: the, the think you can say was <laughs> and the, the, the industry has very clearly gone the CCS route, but yeah, you know, it's good. It's exactly. So
0: with cars, the Chathamo standard, at least in the U.S., it, it, we're not seeing cha- many Chatamo vehicles left, and and there were a couple of uh, early entries for, I'll call them maybe light duty, medium duty trucks that were using Chatamo and now moving to CCS. So what we're seeing is CCS really dominating. Now, there's CCS-1, which is the U.S., and there's CCS-2, which is Europe. And we saw a couple of vehicles from Europe make it here to the U.S. uh, with CCS-2 cables or or inlets uh, requiring a charging station with CCS-2. But there are very few. They tend to be more like uh, pilots because these vehicle OEMs are introducing the vehicle first in Europe. They want to do some testing in the U.S. So I don't know if CCS-2 will actually play a a dominant role yet in the U.S. From what we're seeing is it's still basically CCS-1. Now, the difference is that with these medium and heavy-duty trucks, they have gone with their launches with higher voltage batteries, whereas in the beginning with electric cars, the typical battery voltage was 400 volts DC. So the amount of power you can deliver to a vehicle is volts times amps. So if your voltage of your battery is 400 volts, in order to deliver more power, you have to draw a lot of current or amps. So if you wanna be able to charge a vehicle very fast without having to have big gauges of wire and to provide high amount of current or amperage, it's better to move to a higher voltage vehicle. And that's what we've seen with the trucks. They've moved to 700 volt batteries, 800 volt batteries, which allow them to charge at a much higher rate without having to deliver as much amperage or current. So that's one of the things that I would say is uh, a little bit different. Now, with electric cars, you're starting to see some newer entries in the market that are moving to higher voltage batteries, which, of course, are more expensive. And that allows those vehicles to charge super fast, like a Porsche Taycan Porsche. or maybe a GM Hummer.
2: Yeah, I was going to say the Porsche Taycan, I think, was the first to, to bring that to, to electric cars so to focus on that higher performance. So just uh, your your explanations are really we, we need to cut snippets of these for certain topics because they're really so clear and, and well well explained with some difficult topics. I'll just take a brief moment to you know encourage anyone who's listening who enjoys the Clean Tech Talk podcast series. Please remember to subscribe, leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and you can also subscribe to you know contribute a few bucks a month or even hundred dollars a month. Some do at future.cleantechnica.com/slash subscribe to support our work and our uh, podcasting, writing, and YouTubing efforts moving moving uh, and thank you for all of that for everyone who does who does that uh, moving on to a sort of a broader I guess this could be broad or specific but what are some of the current challenges in the EV charging field it's clearly you know ready ready to rock but at the same time there must be some challenges at this early stage uh, in this market
1: I think from from a challenges perspective we've really talked a lot about it but One of the biggest challenges I think that we're seeing or going to continue to see uh, when we're moving fleets to scale is power availability and and utility. Utilities working with their customers, trying to make sure that uh, there's power availability at the site. And if there's not, how are you going to manage that from a demand charge perspective? How are you going to manage that from just a, a managed charging perspective? If you've got 10, 150 kilowatt chargers on a site? But you've only got a megawatt of power availability. You obviously can't charge, uh, use your full capacity of charging power because you don't have grid power to back it up. And Steve and I were actually having a, a similar conversation to this just last night. But I think that's going to be the biggest challenge is, is trying to get uh, power out to these sites. I mean, we're, we're obviously looking in the electric truck industry, chargers are, are bigger, they're faster, they're higher power. So and, and there's a lot of trucks out there. So at scale, right, it starts to become an issue where you may have, I mean, you could have a hundred trucks trying to charge at one site and they may be charging at 150 kilowatts, 300 kilowatts, even even more than that, right? And we're not, without even getting into the, the megawatt charging
2: standard. Yeah, I, I was going to say, yeah, maybe this is a good time to sort of also bring in megawatt charging because it's sort of a, a buzzword a little bit. Can you right. yeah, talk about that in relation to this and, and more broadly, what is this megawatt charging?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I do think it's a great, it's a kind of a great segue for that. And, and Steve probably has some different challenges, but uh, as far as power availability goes, right, right, right now we're charging at speeds of around 300 kilowatts, 350 kilowatts uh, in that area, liquid cooled charging on high voltage battery packs, right? And that's for a lot of these electric trucks. And you may see some of these at like Daimler or P, excuse me uh, Portland General Electric's uh, electric island there in Portland they've got uh, kind of a cool showcase going on there for some of these higher power chargers but obviously the move is to try to get even faster charging and the current CCS standard only allows for i believe uh, up to 500 amps on the cable and that's just due to conductor size and some different things that that Steve mentioned as far as volts and amps is the higher power you go higher conductor size you're going to need to handle the higher number of amps. And if you get to a point where it goes beyond that, if you've either got to have a really large cable that nobody can pick up and put into into the vehicle, or you've got to find a way, or you just got to cut it off. And so what they're looking at is what's called megawatt charging standard. I believe it's uh, 1,250 volts at 3,000 amps. Uh, Is that correct? I I had that backwards. I think that's right. 1,250 volts at 3000 amps is the the maximum for the megawatt charging standard. It uses a lot of the same communication as uh, your CCS cable would, but it's much, much higher powered. It's a much larger connector. It's much higher powered. So it's just crazy to think that, you know, maybe if you're going to be charging one vehicle at, that's, you know, up to three megawatts or almost four megawatts of power. uh, How are you, how's your utility or your grid going to be able to handle that, right? Um,
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I
1: mean, how's how that going to work out?
2: Yeah, and I mean, I I've I've you know wrestled with some very large charging cables for cars, that you know I was like this this is getting this is getting a little bit you know much for people, and you've seen some you know obviously some some elderly people or, or smaller people <laughs> dealing dealing with with cables and thinking oh that's not really that's a that's a big cable for that person, so what is the actual what what is the deal with this kind of a megawatt charging cable like how does it work is it is it just a giant cable you gotta or is it or are there like mechanisms to to you know sort of get keep the human effort out of it Uh,
1: I I think there's a little bit on both sides and and Steve feel free to chime in but it is a liquid cooled cable from what I understand with all the development that's going on they're going to have to use liquid cooling to try to keep uh, the conductor size as low as possible so it is somewhat manageable. I mean, it is much larger than your CCS uh, cable now, the CCS cable and connector, but uh, doesn't seem unmanageable, particularly because of the liquid cooling, I think is doing a lot to help there. But you've also got some other companies that that are coming around who are looking at automatic connection systems or, you know, robotic style arms where they're able to do the plugging in for you so that a human never has to touch it. I mean, obviously we see that in bus charging now where we're using things like overhead pantographs to plug in, Versus having someone get out and and grab a connector and plug it in, and we're part of that is because it's higher charging speeds, and I I think that we're you know, but we know that Roxas is is one of those companies that's kind of a startup that's looking at doing automatic connection systems, robotic style arms that will that will plug in a vehicle for you. I think there's a couple others out there as well, but uh, Steve, feel free to chime in because I'm 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 sure you're seeing some uh, some different trends there as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just important just to be the engineer for a quick second here and just realize that cables are part of a of a DC fast charger and their cables have different amperages. And historically, the most amperage or current you could put through a cable without needing liquid cooling had been 200 amps. Mm-hmm. But recently, there have been some introductions of, of a new cable. We have just started to deploy some of those That are rated at 300 amps continuous or 400 amps for a short period of time without liquid cooling. But if you wanted to to provide more power above 200 amps, historically, you had to go to liquid cooling. As Kendall mentioned, and we have a 500 amp cable that uses liquid cooling. Now, this new standard, this you know called MCS for Megawatt Charging Standard, it's still not finalized. It's still being completed and being tested out and you know, I hear different dates of when it's going to be available commercially. I've heard at some point it was the end of 2022. I don't know, Kendall, if you're hearing the same thing. I would bet it's more in 2023. I, I've point- heard, I've heard
1: even farther out, Steve. Even the, further. Yeah, okay. yeah, 2020, well, end of 2023, 2024. I think we still got some time before we're really, we're really going to see the MCS at a at a commercial availability.
0: But but what I was gonna say is today, what I have seen is that most medium heavy duty trucks that are are on the market right now. So the bulk, let's just call it 98% of them cannot charge greater than 150 kilowatts. So really a 200 amp cable is really all you need for that application right now. And as this market grows, then I think the vehicle OEMs will start pushing the envelope above 150 kilowatts. Whereas we're already seeing that with cars, right? We're already way above 150 kilowatts with cars. And Kendall can tell you with transit buses, what are you at, 450, Kendall?
1: Uh, two, it's 450-ish overhead, uh, sometimes less than that. And then plug-in is, is still about 150 kilowatts, the 200 amp mark on the on the plug-in as well.
2: Yeah, I always love those pantograph. I don't know. They they just look very cool and futuristic to me. But yeah, I, I guess, and you don't have to. You know, obviously in in this trucking, if you're a professional truck trucking person and driver, or working at you know at the dock or whatever, you're not you're not an 80, 80 year old retired grandma at the <laughs> at the. Charging station, who's right? Uh, so, so that's not really the a concern. It's just an interesting. Uh, I guess, I guess we're we're getting into the weeds, which is where if you're listening to Clean Tech Talk for an hour, you d- should definitely enjoy this. This is what this is what you listen for. <laughs> getting into the weeds of this kind of thing, and on uh, well, on that topic a bit too. Well, you know, you mentioned it briefly. The kind of the grid how the grid handles this. And I mean, this is sort of one of those topics that you just see pop up from time to time as a kind of, I don't know, call it a scare headline, a scary headline from a major media outlet or something where they're like, oh, but we can't have electric vehicles because they will crash the grid. But there are you know, some legitimate specific concerns when it comes to this, this level of, of high power charging. Can you speak a little bit more about how you work with utilities or how different utilities are approaching this and, you know, just sort of how this is developing the kind of the interaction between the EV charging companies, the, the, the EV truck companies, the, you know, all, all of the different uh, stakeholders in this space.
0: I mean, I can comment a little bit on that because I work with a lot of the various utilities and I still think those scares that we're talking about are a couple of years out. I think in the short term, it tends to be more around the time it takes to add the power at a specific location. So you're a customer, you have a site and you're just think, this is gonna be so easy. I need 500 kilowatts of power. You're just gonna call the, you know, your utility and just say, can you get me that tomorrow? And the truth is they have to do a study. They have to look at the area. It's possible that there is not enough power in your little area there, and they have to build out a whole new substation, and that could take years. But in general, what we see is that there is enough power in the area, but to get a service upgrade to your facility maybe is going to take 6 to 18 months. And most people are shocked by that and how long it would take. So in the short term, what I always tell people is, because you had asked earlier about challenges and we all talked about utilities, just have your conversation with your utilities early. That should be the first place you go. And start planning when you're planning your site. Plan it by talking with your utilities. Yes, our charging stations have long lead times, but even with super long lead times that we're experiencing right now, Typically we're still not the problem. It's getting the service
1: upgrade to your site. Yeah. And I'll add to that, what's what's really interesting is that the utilities are kind of a lot of utilities you talk to, they say, well, we it's not a, it's not a, a power capacity issue. It's just like Steve said, it's getting it there. And, and I think that they're, they're really incentivized to make this happen because this is a revenue stream for them, right? Uh, this, is, this is where they make their money. And if you can get something like a fleet, like an electric truck fleet or an electric bus fleet or even a light duty fleet, something that's going to have very regular charging, that's going to up that, that power baseload, that's going to basically say, hey, utility, here's your, here's your monthly regular income that you're going to get from us every single month on our utility bill they're chomping at the bit. I think they're really excited about that. And so while there are some challenges to making sure there's power at these sites, I, I think the, the, the people who you know, need to overcome those challenges the most are the ones who are most incentivized. So it's, it's quite an interesting kind of a, a, a back and forth where we're seeing utilities say, yes, there are problems, but we're also seeing utilities jump right into it and say, let's figure out how to, how to make this work. Uh, because in the end, it's what's going to help the bottom line.
2: Yeah, it's always been clearly a, a big opportunity for for utilities, but at the same time, I'm sure it's hard to make big changes and, and sort of uh, uh, adapt to new new markets. So I'm sure it varies. Another kind of into the weeds uh, detailed topic that is quite interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what it, what interoperability is and why it's important for commercial industrial EVs, both the hardware and software side of it, and Uh, This was already touched on a little bit, but yeah, I'd like to hear you talk a bit more about that, maybe uh, starting with Steve, since I think you brought it up earlier.
0: Sure. So yeah, there's two terms that we use in our industry. We talk about interoperability being the handshaking between the vehicle and the charging station. So between the connector that's plugging into the vehicle, and then we'll use the term integration, where we're talking about our charging station to an OCPP network. So all of our charging stations have a cellular modem. Uh, You can also connect the Ethernet cable and that provides communication to the outside world. And that's how we're able to collect usage data, restrict access. That's how these software companies that are embracing this open standard called OCPP, that stands for open charge point protocol. They're able to communicate, to control using these smart energy profiles the charge rate. And many of these utility programs are requiring data, and that's the connection to the outside world. So when it comes to integration, the number one issue that customers fail to look at is, do they actually have a good cell signal at their site? It's typically overlooked, partially because the construction work is done by electrical contractors and they know electricity, but they don't necessarily know telecom and don't look for something like that. So I would tell everybody listening on this, number one problem is you're in the facility with bad cell signal. There are ways to get around it, but you need to plan for it. So number one, you've got a great please, cell
2: signal. Please don't tell that to so Floridian like me. This is not... <laughs> We have challenges with that here in Florida. Seems like I don't know. No, no one wants to let towers go up in their neighborhood. <laughs> it,
0: you know, it's just partially. You know, when you look at where these fleets tend to be, they're not like right on the street. A lot of these cell towers are designed for people that are like either on the road in their cars, not necessarily, you know, in a in a rural setting. So there's, and also, by the way, you can have really large buildings blocking the cell signal, which create challenges. So just because your specific area, you think there's great cell signal, you may install the charging stations indoor. You may, may be in a parking garage for, for all you know, and then the cell signal becomes weak. But, but when it comes to this integration, you know, it takes a lot of effort. You know We have somewhere in the United States, probably between 10 and 20 different software partners that we have to work with to make sure that our stations can communicate to their cloud. And OCPP, even though it's pretty mature, it's still not perfect. It still leaves some room up for interpretation. So not everybody interprets it the same way. By the way, the same applies on the interoperability, which is the handshaking between the vehicle and the charging station. CCS-1, yes, it's pretty well established, but once again, room for interpretation. As you move to vehicles with bigger batteries those batteries create what's called Y capacitance as you parallel them together that Y capacitance can interfere with the safety checks that are involved with CCS1 which is called isolation monitoring so there is a lot of work that has to be done by the drivetrain manufacturers before they launch the vehicle and testing with you know various uh, DC fast chargers that are on the market so Still early years for fleshing out interoperability and integration, We're, we continue to do it, but that is definitely a, a challenge in the industry right now.
2: Well, uh, Tesla's uh, Elon Musk has sort of ruined or, I don't know, maybe maybe humorized uh, the topic for me because we wrote about it at some point and he responded, you down with OCPP? That's <laughs> a reference to the 1990s rap song, you down with OPP, which uh, was big when I was young. So I I, I can't, it's hard for me to stay focused. i got to keep thinking about you down with OCPP. But anyway, it is, it's an, Kendall, do you want, want to add anything useful and serious to that topic?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, we are down with OCPP. <laughs> we love OCPP. And I think it, it's really helpful. Like Steve said, a lot of it's up up for interpretation, which we all want to make sure that we're interpreting it the right way and I, I always I want to steal a quote from Heather Flanagan, who's kind of like the queen of EV charging at ABB. I, I like to like to call her, but uh, she explains it as a it's it's kind of like a recipe, right? You you get a recipe, it tells you how to make something, it tells you how to get to the end product, but not every chef is going to cook it exactly the same way, right? And it's kind of like not every OEM is going to interpret the recipe exactly the same. There may be small little little tiny things here and there. And then the biggest thing with interoperability, you know, when, when we're doing interoperability testing, it, we're not just testing to make sure that the vehicle charges, right? It's we're, we're not just testing to say, hey, okay, we plugged it in and now there's current flowing, right? We, we made it through the handshake. It's the edge cases. It's what happens if something happens with the control pilot voltage? What happens if there is a sudden stop in, in the voltage that's being delivered or it, it drops, it dips for, uh, you know, half of a second? Or what happens if you know, there's a, there's a, there's a very minute ground fault that occurs that may have just been a lizard getting zapped across the lines or something like that. Right. You know, like there's, there's, maybe there's a, maybe there's something along those lines that you're like, okay, we want to make sure that this thing is robust and that it's safe. Right. You don't want to build a house of cards and say, it's good because it stands up. You want to know that it's going to be okay when the wind blows. And so that's really, I think the, the, the major shtick of Interoperability and interoperability testing—we do it all the time. Where they say, you know, an OEM will will bring their vehicle. We're, we're say we're supplying a, some electric truck to a site that we've never seen before. or Somebody is purchasing an electric truck and trying to integrate our chargers. We want to make sure that we do that testing. And they may take the truck to the site and say, "Hey, we plugged it in. It's charging. Everything's fine." No, it's it's really not because. You know, you're going to come screaming when, it, when something isn't going right. and We're going to have to sit there and, and try to figure out, is it a charger issue? Is it a bus issue? A truck issue? Is it something in between? And that's really what that interoperability testing is, is to try to hash that out before it ever gets into a customer's hands. So that's, that's what I would add to the interoperability topic, is it's, 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 it's probably a lot more complex than even even some people think about. It's not just let's plug it in, and make sure it works. It's, it's everything else.
2: Yeah, I think that's all a really useful perspective. You know, I I I think there is a common perception. You think, oh, I'll just plug it in, like my computer, my phone. And to an extent, that's true. But, you know, I've, I've lived several years in, in Poland where we've kind of, as the EV charging industry was getting going and and the EV industry and had, you know, a lot of cases where something's wrong and you're on the phone with support for like a half an hour or an hour even. And there's, you know, testing different things. What could it be? What what broke was it something in the car? Actually, I had it happen this summer. I, I was with uh, my friend, had Rayno Zoe, and, and um, in Poland was visiting, and it spent a lot of time because it was not clear if it was the car or the station for a while. And there's just there's software things, hardware things, there's so many components. And I, I mean, I guess the kind of an easy comparison for us lay people is, you know, you think of something's wrong with the computer and the, the, the feedback, try restarting it, you know, because just kind of restart it, reboot it all, but you don't really want to ever end up in that situation Uh, And I've also had a situation where they've restarted the station and it still didn't work. So then, but that was sort of a clue that it was a car issue, but yeah, it's, it's very complicated. The more you talk about it, the more you make me realize how complicated it is and how much I think ABB is on top of, you know, I'm sure you've had many cases of running into problems you didn't expect and then solving them over the past decade.
0: Yeah. I would say by the way, that the one that Kendall probably deals with more than anybody else because he's in the transit bus space, but it's this concept of, you you had mentioned ZAC demand charges. If you wanna avoid demand charges, in general, what you'd wanna make sure is that you're not charging in the middle of the day at your facility, but waiting until the evening. But if somebody were to plug the vehicle in, let's say in the middle of the day, and you had to wait and wait to, so don't, don't let the vehicle start charging, let the OCPP network send a start charge command later in the evening, you have to make sure that the vehicle doesn't go to sleep. So, when, And when I say that, typically when you plug in, you authenticate and start a charge session right away. If you delay that for six hours, the vehicle, it's monitoring that inlet. right? It's monitoring different voltages and it's getting ready to start charging that battery. And it takes energy to do that. And the vehicle manufacturers don't want to burn through the battery. So they will put the vehicle kind of, if you will, into this sleep mode. And I'll let Kendall maybe elaborate a little bit more, but some of them just go, just shut off. So when you, you want to start charging later on at night, you send a start charge command, you're plugged into that vehicle and the vehicle's it's it's not on, right? And it can't start charging. And there's a lot of work that has to be done to, to have this, I call it delayed start, to enable delayed start. So I don't know, Kendall, if you want to add a little bit more, because I know you've dealt with that more than I have.
1: Oh, I mean, we could we could talk for hours about all the all the different, you know, situations. But I think just the the, the general idea is that, you know, the industry is growing. All the features that everybody wants are growing and we're trying to work to, to build those features in. But then we've got to go back to the OEMs and say, hey, let's talk about this new feature on this vehicle. Let's see how it's going to react with the chargers. I mean, what's really important to us, I mean, the, when we go in uh, and we're putting, we're working with an OEM on like major projects. What we're going to do is we're going to try to get a charger in their in their lab, in their R and D lab or their factory, so that we can do all this testing. It's easy. There's a charger where the vehicles are instead of having to bring vehicles to a charger. Something along those lines, and it's just critically important to us to try to do this before it ever gets to a customer site. Now, yes, there there are obviously times where we don't get to accomplish that, and and then we get to the customer site and things are running swimmingly until they're not right until somebody plugs it in in the middle of the day and expects it to charge uh, once 10 p.m. rolls around so it's i mean there's there's a million different scenarios that could pop up and that's really what interoperability is, is 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 trying to trying to make sure that we're all talking the same language that we're all interpreting the recipe in the same way and and for it's very valuable for the end users as well because it means that they can have confidence that hey we can buy a charger from ABB or we can buy a charger from one of ABB's competitors and all of our vehicles should work on it the same way, right? And the same way with the the, the opposite is, is hey, uh, we, we bought so-and-so's truck, but now we want to try out this other OEM's truck, ABB, are we going to be able to continue to use your chargers? And the answer should always be yes, unequivocally, absolutely yes. So, that's uh, that. That's really what interoper, interoperability boils down to: is is making sure that the customers are confident that everything's going to work well, uh, no matter what the use case is.
2: Yeah, well, I love a podcast where I actually learn some learn something new and not just talk about you know the same same stuff we've been talking about for for a few years or something or decade. And I've learned a lot of new stuff from you guys, so it's really interesting and. I think to me, it's just a testament to how how much ABB is a big leading expert in this field. Uh, so just to end with a fun, you know, a fun question that I think a lot of people ask and wonder about beyond road vehicles, what are the next big vehicles to electrify? You guys have to know the answer because it's your job. So so what do you think is is next beyond road vehicles? So I'll
0: start and then I'll leave. I know one that Kendall's been working on uh, later, but but for me, actually, we've started seeing customers that are electrifying airplanes. So we have a couple of customers we can't necessarily share the names, but they are using our charging stations to electrify airplanes. The other industry that's changing is really ground support equipment at airports. So historically, there there were or are uh, you know electric charging stations to to. For the equipment at airports that move luggage around and whatnot, but they were using an industrial charging standard. I think it's 60 volts or 80 volts, I always forget, but it's much lower voltage. They're morphing to this higher voltage with a CCS type of connector. But there's other equipment that even to like start a jet engine, okay, it it requires a, a device that burns fuel. And they're moving to an electric version of that device. It's a partner of ours, which is Goldhofer. So there are a lot of cool markets that I'm seeing. Kendall, what about you?
1: Oh man, this is such a good question because I really love this question because it's going to show the, the, the breadth of, of really how far electric vehicle drivetrains are reaching. And so you know uh, some of the really interesting ones. Obviously, ABB's been doing a lot in the marine space. Been electrifying a couple of different things. I know that uh, ABB's electrified the Maid of the Mist, and so it's running carbon-free miles, taking folks underneath the Niagara Falls. And so, I mean, in marine, we're seeing we're seeing some advances in marine. Which in marine there are a little bit different needs in the in the. Power levels are a lot higher and the turnaround times a lot shorter, uh, which kind of facilitates. It kind of creates the need for the higher power. But those those vehicles are electrifying. There are electric tugboats that are going around. We're seeing kind of uh, in the vein of what Steve mentioned with like airport fleets is is uh, forklifts and other sort of industrial equipment uh, vehicles and things like that. We're seeing electrify. Uh, we're also seeing. For on an even more fun note, I mean, I'm, I'm a Southern guy, so I don't get to see snow very often, but there's uh, snowmobiles. We've partnered with a company called Taiga, which is doing electric snowmobiles. And I think um, they're, mo- I believe they're out of Canada. Um, I'd have to look up and see, but I love seeing the photos of, of their snowmobiles plugged into our charters. And so it's obviously reaching beyond uh, road vehicles, beyond passenger cars, beyond uh, transit buses and and electric trucks it's it, it's really starting to pervade into all sorts of different industries and there there's they're so much fun to kind of uh, to kind of see and, and and see where everybody's going and see how we can kind of stretch the envelope.
2: yeah, well, something I learned years ago and I, I think more so every year uh, wherever there's electrification there's ABB. so it's a real pleasure and honor to talk with you guys today about these things and to to learn a lot more to get a lot more perspective on what's happening you know. It sort of this 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 kind of conversation helps helps me dive deeper into the technology in a way that I the way in, in the way that writing about it just doesn't quite it's it's always different to learn to hear from a conversation and hear experts talk about something there's all kinds of little details that pop out so thank you both for that uh, one more time uh, you know thank you to all all our listeners be sure to subscribe and leave a review. And check in next time to go get your electric fix, but I'll just let Kendall and Steve have, uh, have the final word here. Uh, Kendall?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks, Zach for, for having us. I mean, this industry is such a fun place to be in, and it's a lot of hard work, and, and there's obviously a lot of challenges, and, and that's what makes it fun, right? N- nothing never nothing ever came easy, I think. And so we're really really diving in. It's been, it's been a great time, and, uh, and th- just thanks again for having us and letting us speak our piece.
0: Yeah, and same here. Thank you, Zach. Really appreciate the time today. And thank you to all your listeners. I hope they got a lot out of it. And you know, if anybody has questions, they can always reach out to our, our group, and we'd be more than happy to answer questions for them. And we work with a lot of great partners as well. So uh, we'll introduce them to some of our partners, because we couldn't do it without our, our partnerships. They're the really important piece Absolutely. of the equation.
2: Thank you much and keep keep doing your, your great work. We really appreciate it. Have a good one. Great. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.